You're listening to the Living Word Church podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. Today's message comes from our lead pastor, Doug Jansen. This right here, my friends, is a chair from my house. No applause? No applause on that? Okay, come on. If you put your chair up here, I'd be applauding. I'm just saying, standing ovation. All right, this is my chair, and it's one of the chairs around my dining room table, and I don't know if you can tell from where you are, but right here, right here, there's a little bit of an issue. It's a little wobbly, right, in this spot right here, but never once have I sat down in this chair thinking it wouldn't hold me. I've known that there's this little wobble issue, but instead of never sitting in this chair and allowing that to throw me, I've realized I probably just got to pay some attention to this area and make sure it's firmed up, and then I'll be okay, and I'll probably never think about that issue again. And you know, in this series, we're talking about our faith, and we're talking about how sometimes in our faith, there's these wobbly areas, right? There's some times where we have our faith in Jesus, and it feels like, wow, somebody brought up a good point I never thought of before about Jesus, and our faith starts to wobble a little bit, or something happens in our life that's negative or bad, and we think, God, where are you? Why didn't you answer my request? And our faith begins to wobble a little bit. And what I hope and pray in this series is, as we're talking about the chair, and how the, the chair is kind of like the evidence of Jesus all coming together, that in the same way, when we sit down in the chair that supports our faith, and maybe there's a little wobble, all we've got to do is pay a little attention to it, and we've got to research it a little bit, maybe ask some questions, or maybe seek God out on it, and before we know it, that thing's going to firm up, and we're going to be able to sit down without any issue, but I love that you and I, man, we can continue just to sit in the chair. We don't have to let our whole faith fall apart just because there's a little wobble in one area of our relationship with Jesus, and so that's why we've been putting this chair here together. Next week, I'm going to have like 18 chairs on stage just to mess with you, but I've got this chair here, which is getting there, man. I can sit down in this, and I can you know, rest the right arm now at this point can't lean back yet no left arm but for eight weeks we've been putting this chair together we've been representing the evidence that supports Jesus being alive as a piece of this chair each piece coming together and we've seen all kinds of great stuff about the truth that Jesus is alive and all the evidence coming together that if one wheel got a little wobbly like this chair we can still sit in the rest of the chair if the armrest is a little wobbly like this chair we can go ahead and fix that up and search that out but we can still sit in the chair and it's going to support us and the same is true of your faith when you're looking at all the evidence for Jesus and who he is and what he promises you and I. Now this is so important for a couple of reasons and it's important for a lot of reasons and we've been bringing different stuff up every week but today I want to bring up two reasons why talking about this is so important right now. Number one because in this broken world that we're living in as we saw last week I think it was 83 or 84 percent of people on planet earth right now in our nation are saying that they are anxious, angry, depressed, or sad. That that's just kind of characterizing so many of us right now. And one of the things that is sort of probably running rampant in our world is called high-functioning depression. There's, there's depression that wipes us out, and some of us may be wrestling with that or helping somebody else through some of that. But there's also high-functioning depression. This is where just beneath the surface, there's sort of this brokenness, but we can still go to work, we can still go to school, we can still do the things we've got to do. Maybe we're aware of it in ourselves. maybe we're not. Maybe others are aware of it, maybe they're not. Maybe we're kind of hiding that just beneath the surface sort of mess in our life. And you know, High-functioning depression has a bunch of risk factors, and one of them is personal or family history. Another one is certain physical illness and medication, but, but there's three of them that's true of all of us. Three risk factors, three things that can lead to this high-functioning depression, and number one is major life changes. 
And number two is trauma. And number three is stress. And you and I have all experienced those three things in this last 20 months. And so this series really matters because just under the surface in many of our lives is this brokenness and Jesus and knowing he's alive and can be trusted is the pathway back to healing, the pathway back to joy, the pathway back to life. And so that's one of the reasons this is so important. Another reason this is so important because I think a lot of us have, have looked around at the world and we've asked the question in the last 20 months. We have asked this question, why are things like this? This is not how things were supposed to be. You know, I, I, I apologize to my kids all the time. I say, I'm so sorry that you're growing up in, in what our world is experiencing right now. I'm so sorry that this has been your life to this point in these last 20 months specifically because, man, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And I think a lot of us look at those struggles the world is, is facing and the things that we're all walking through and we're like, this was not the game plan. This is not how it was supposed to you know, all work out. This isn't the way I thought it would be. And I think as we feel some of that dissatisfaction, we can begin to almost wonder, like, God, are you as faithful as you say you are? Like, you promised to satisfy me and to be my joy and to be my peace, but I'm wrestling with some of this stuff right now. Like, are you those things to me? And I just want to let you know that this series is so important because if you're feeling some of that, like, I don't know, lack in any of those areas, part of the reason you're feeling that is because this world as it is right now is not our home. Like this is not what you and I are designed for. As satisfied as we can be in Jesus and as much joy and peace as he does give us, there's always going to be something about here and now that just isn't right. Because you and I are made for eternity with our Savior in a perfect place where he wipes away tears and there is no pain and there is no death and there is no loss and there is no pandemic and there is no quarantine and there is no arguing over this, that, and the other. Like that's what we were made for. So we shouldn't be surprised if that at times, even on our best day, we look around at this world and long for more. And this evidence matters so much because it's the more. It's what gives us the more. It's what gives us the eternity and the, the salvation and the forgiveness of sin and the reality that one day we'll see our Savior and he will wipe away every tear and he will undo every wrong. That's why this series matters so much. So yes, I'm throwing a lot of information at you. I'm throwing a lot of what I, I pray you're seeing as truth at you in this series. But man, there's a lot of heart behind this series as well. And so what have we seen so far? We've seen the first piece that the evidence points to God. When we talk about why we're here and we talk about how we got here, the evidence points to God. And then we saw that truth and power are found in Jesus alone. And then we saw that sacrifice and substitution of Jesus in our place is the story of the whole Bible. And then we looked at the prophecies. And then we looked at the eyewitnesses and, and how they were willing to be killed and imprisoned and beaten. And then we saw 24 reasons why we can believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And then last week, we saw this overnight transformation of the first century. That should have never happened unless Jesus came back from the dead. We saw the endurance of the sp and the spread of Christianity until our day here today. And so we've seen a lot of truth and tonight we're going to grab another piece. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray it's encouraging you. It's answering some questions. It's breaking apart some doubt. It's, it's solidifying those wobbly places in our faith. 
And I pray it's also giving you a heart to share your faith. If you're not a follower of Jesus, question with us and look with us and explore with us. Now today, we're gonna talk about historical evidence outside of the Bible. Everybody say historical evidence outside of the Bible. All right, this is so important, okay? Because I think a lot of us have seen that YouTube video. We've, we've watched the Discovery Channel bit. We have had the professor or the teacher or the friend or the boss or the parent or the child, the person in our life that's looked at us and say, you can't take Jesus seriously. Like, you don't really believe that Jesus actually lived and existed. You don't believe that he actually died and rose back from the dead. Like, you don't believe this stuff really, right? And I think we've all walked through some of that. And so today, what I want us to do is look at Christianity through the lens of history, not through the Bible. We're going to look at what history has to say. Now, the Bible is also history, but I want to exclude that and talk about just if we looked at secular history, what would we find about Jesus? Because there are many arguments, oh, Jesus never existed. That's just simply not true. Oh, what was, made, what was said about the disciples was made up. They didn't really see that stuff. They didn't, that's simply not true. And we're going to see that here tonight. Mark Roberts says this. You can read this with me. Almost every scholar of New Testament and ancient history believes that Jesus existed. And his followers wrote what happened. And then people who had nothing to do with the Bible, historians, people just writing down events and, and history in the first and second century, confirm many of the things that the Bible says. And so we're going to look at what a bunch of non-Christian historians and first and second century writers had to say about Jesus. And then we're going to line it up with the Bible and see how it compares. I have a buddy who was a pizza delivery guy a long time ago when he was like a teenager, probably maybe late teens, early college years. And he drove this really sweet red hot rod car and he would deliver pizzas to whoever of course needed them and he came to this one house and he went up and knocked on the door and it was like this moment out of a movie the the girl opened the door and he saw her and she saw him and their eyes both went big and it was like magic and there were stars and fireworks going off in their hearts and emotions but the funny thing about it is it never went past that moment Because the guy was just sort of like, you know what, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, man. I'm not going to ask her for her number or anything like that, man. If it's supposed to happen, it's going to happen, and we're going to be brought back together one day. And so he kind of walks back to his hot rod, and he's looking over his shoulder, and she's looking through the blinds out at him. And, you know, there's this questioning and wondering what's going to happen. Well, decades go by. And suddenly, my buddy's out on a date, and then he's getting to know this girl, and they're talking, and he starts talking about, oh, yeah, I was a pizza delivery guy for a while. And she goes, oh, man, I once saw this, met this pizza delivery guy, and he was driving this hot rod. And he goes, was it red? She's like, it was red. And she's it's you, it's me, it's us. They have six children now, by the way, friends. Like, they got married, and there they are. And, and I love hearing this story told with the two of them together because it's a pretty unbelievable, incredible story. And so you have him telling the story, and then you have her confirming the story with little details and facts, and it all lines up one incredible story that is confirmed as they tell it together. And today I want you to see that what you and I have is we have the the story of Jesus in the Bible, but history tells this similar story, confirms it, you know, supports details, tells us things that the Bible says are true. And so we're going to see tonight how that works. And we're not going to look at Christian authors here. 
You know, we could talk about the 36,000 times the early church fathers quoted the New Testament. We could talk about guys like Ignatius and Irenaeus and, and Clement of Rome. And, and we can talk about all these other people who were, you know, first, second century um, eyewitnesses and new eyewitnesses. We can talk about all that Christian stuff, but we've covered a lot of that. What I'd rather do is talk with you about secular voices. In fact, some of these are not just non-Christians. They hated Christians. They hated Jesus, and yet they confirm much of what we read in the Bible. And so let's look and see how historical writings outside the Bible line up with what the Bible does have to say about Jesus. Everybody say Josephus. Oh, that was painful. Josephus, man, come on. I guess we need those guys from the mentor tree. I don't know what's going on. All right, for he was a first century Pharisee and Jewish historian, not a Christian. And Josephus gives us a description of Jesus that lines up so beautifully with the, what the Bible says. You can read this with me. He says this, at, the time, at that time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. You hear that? Pilate, this non-Christian first century historian says, uh, condemned him and crucified, to, crucified him. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that they had appeared, he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. A secular source saying Jesus lived, Jesus was crucified by Pilate, and his followers believed that he rose back from the dead. Incredible. Look at what it says in Luke 23. But the crowd pressed Pilate. There's that name. This is what the Bible has to say. It lines right up with what Josephus told us. They shouted that Jesus had to be crucified, and they finally won. Pilate decided to give into their demands. So there we have the crucifixion side of it. There we have Pilate as the ruler who was overseeing this. But now look at Luke 24, 36. It's just a chapter later in the same book. While they, the disciples, were talking about what had happened, Jesus stood among them. He said to them, peace be with you. They were afraid and thought they were seeing a ghost. He asked them, why are you afraid? Why do you have doubts? Look at my hands and feet and see that it's really me. Touch me and see for yourselves. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Say it like you mean it, everybody. Come on, say it with me. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. I love that. But you can see that I do. I'm not a mirage. I'm not an illusion. I'm not a hallucination. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. The disciples were overcome with joy and amazement. Man, that lines up. Josephus just so supported exactly what Luke said in the scriptures about the death and resurrection of Jesus and who was involved, the names. And remember in the past, we looked at Luke and we saw Luke was like first-rate historian in the first century. He, 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 he just lined everything up, studied everything out so painstakingly so he could get it right. We also see Josephus wrote about the death of James. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about James, the brother of Jesus, and how he was killed for his faith and he just simply writes this, the brother of Jesus who was called to Christ. He, he identifies James as literally the brother of Jesus. All right, second name tonight. Say it like you mean it. Tacitus, say it. All right, he's a Roman historian. He lived from the middle of the first century to the beginning of the second century. Not a Christian. And he talked about how Christians suffered extreme penalties for their faith in Jesus. Talks about how Jesus suffered extreme penalty for proclaiming he was the son of God. But 
Even more so, in, ta- uh, in, in uh, 109 AD, Tacitus talks about a fire in Rome. I hinted at this a few weeks ago, and he blamed the Christians for it. And let's just break this apart. Read with me the words of Tacitus. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So there's a fire in Rome. Nero blames the Christians and and he punishes them horrifically. And now he goes back and tells the story of Jesus. Christus, who suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, Okay, so remember a few, a few weeks ago, we saw that there was this archaeological find, and it said the name Tiberius, and it said Pontius Pilate, right? This is, this is now placing those exact same rulers at the time of the crucifixion, okay? And then it says this, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. What do you think that superstition was? Remember, Tacitus isn't a follower of Jesus, so he's not going to go, well, these Christians rightfully know Jesus rose from the dead. No, he calls the resurrection this mischievous superstition. He's saying that there was this thing that began to grow. And then it says this, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their setter and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Now he's talking about the Christians again. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Listen, this is so important. You ready? So these first century Christians in 64 AD, 34 years after Jesus rises back from the dead, are willing to go through such horrific things. 31 years, excuse me, after Jesus rose back from the dead. Look at what they went through. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. The Christians were willing in the first century to endure all of that horror. Why? Because they had either seen a risen Savior or they knew somebody who had. They were willing to give themselves over to those things at the hands of Nero. And Tacitus tells us all this. You know, there's that argument, oh, how do we know Peter and John, or not John, Peter and James and and Matthew and, and all these other followers of Jesus really died at that time because this is exactly what they were doing to Christians in the first century. We could take those eyewitnesses seriously. All right, next name, say it like you mean. Everybody say Suetonius. He's another Roman historian, and he confirms what Tacitus wrote. Read this with me. Punishment by Nero was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. So here it is again. There's this superstition. Well, what's the superstition? That Jesus rose from the dead, and man, Nero went after them, and these Christians would go through it. They would give up their lives because they were so sure Jesus was back from the dead. Remember, you don't die for what you know is a lie. And these Christians were dying not just for what they believed, but for many of them for what they saw. Also, Suetonius says in a book called The Life of Claudius, read this with me. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is another spelling of Christus or Christ, he expelled them from Rome. Everybody say expelled them from Rome. 
So because the Christians were spreading the message of Jesus, they were expelled from Rome. Well, look what Acts 18.2 says. Read this with me. After this, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to the city of Corinth. In Corinth, he met a Jewish man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Aquila had been born in Pontus. Listen to this part. And they had recently come from Italy because why? Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And so what we just heard from Suetonius absolutely lines up with what Luke tells us in Acts 18. All right, next one, number four, Thallus. Everybody say Thallus. He's a first century writer. And in 52 AD, he said in a discussion about the darkness that followed the crucifixion of Jesus, these words, are you ready? On the whole world, there pressed the most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This is a non-Christian writer talking about how it got dark and there was an earthquake at the time of the crucifixion. Well, look at what Matthew tells us in Matthew 27. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Then Jesus loudly cried out once again and gave up his life. The earth shook and the rocks split open. Do you see how what history says supports what the scriptures say about these details? Who crucified Jesus? The fact that his followers believed he rose back from the dead and would do anything and go through anything saying it was true. Right down to the darkness and the earthquake around the time of the crucifixion. So my dad and I have done a ton of projects in various places that I've lived. And we've taken down some walls and some of those walls have been load-bearing. And what that means is that you have like a ceiling, right? And then there's a wall here that holds up that ceiling and there are studs all throughout. So you got, you know, stud two, stud three, stud four, stud five, stud my dad, stud me, you know, like all in there, right? And so you've got all these studs holding up the wall. And so when you take these studs out, what you have to do is put a huge beam across and then support the beam on the end. And there's some guys in the room who helped me put the beam up. I think Ricky was there, Dan was there, Joey was there. Dave, were you there? Because if you weren't, you really should have been. I think I tried you at Chick-fil-A, which is all right, because Play is awesome. But we had a bunch of you big dudes come and help me put this huge beam up. But here's the thing about when you take down a load-bearing wall, not only do you have to make sure that, that you have this new beam and the floor there is supported, you have to go down into the basement underneath the spot that now is bearing all this weight where you took the wall down and there are these pillars on the side now holding everything up and make sure that that floor is supported underneath. There need to be pillars underneath or a beam underneath there too. And what I hope you're seeing here is that that first century, uh, first and second century secular writings are like the first floor being supported, right? We're talking about how you and I can trust what we're hearing, that, that, that it can support the weight of our lives in eternity. And the first, the first and second century secular writers here are like that foundation that then we build on with what we see in the scriptures. And so they're supported, they line up, and they can carry the weight of our life in eternity. Everybody say, Lucian. He lived in the second half of the second century, and he's obviously not a Christian because he mocked Christians in his writings, and he confirms, though, that Christians existed and that they followed a man who was crucified. crucified. Look what Lucian said. The Christians you know worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rights and was crucified on that account. And so again, we have historically this evidence that Jesus lived, that his followers believed in him, and they followed him, worshipped him, and that he was crucified. Everybody say Valentinus. 
All right, we're, dr- we're drifting off, friends. Come on, keep strong with me. He was a second century Gnostic, and this is what he writes. Jesus was patient and accepting suffering since he knows that his death is life for many. He was nailed to the tree. He published the edict of the Father on the cross. Now, he sounds like a Christian, but we talked about Gnosticism. We talked about how it isn't quite the real deal. But here he is, a, a second century writer talking about what Jesus went through. All right, come on. I just got two more names I need you to say with me. And this is kind of a fun one, okay? Everybody say Pliny the Younger. All right, good work. Now, there was a Pliny the Elder, and Pliny the Elder was not Pliny the Younger's dad. He was his uncle. And so that's why they called Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger, and not Pliny Jr., which I also think doesn't sound quite as scholarly. So I'm glad they went with Pliny the Younger. But he was a Roman author and governor. And he wrote letters to Emperor Trajan in 112 AD and talks about how he was killing, listen, men, women, boys, and girls who called themselves Christians. And he talked about how he made Christians bow down to the emperor statues. And he also says this, he made them curse Christ, which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. And then he goes on to say of Christians being tried, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Hold on one second right there. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how first century Jews never would have worshipped a man as God. But here is Jesus who comes, rises from the dead, proves to them that he is God in the flesh, and now they worship him goes on, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. And so this confirms that Christians gathered, worshiped Christ as God, and were committed to living a life that honored him, even if it cost them their very life. Last name, say it like you mean an emperor, Trajan. All right, he replied to Pliny the Younger's letter by saying this. Read, with, read this with me. No search should be made for these people. When they are denounced and found guilty, they must be punished. With the restriction, however, that when the party denies himself to be a Christian and shall give proof that he is not, that is, by adoring our gods, he shall be pardoned on the ground of repentance, even though he may have formerly incurred suspicion. What is this saying? It's saying that he wrote back to Pliny and said, okay, don't worry about chasing them all down, but, but if, if you can get some that will go ahead and denounce their God and worship ours, then let them off the hook. Let them off the hook as long as they're willing to worship our God instead of theirs. And you see, again, the horrific things that were done to these followers of Jesus based on what? What was the hinge event? It was Jesus back from the dead. And the eight people we looked at tonight are not Christians, but they confirmed a whole lot through history, didn't they? And then we could talk about Christians who wrote outside the Bible. Guys like Polycarp, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Clement of Rome, Quadratus, Aristides. Like we could go on and on. And talk about more first century, second century, even third century writers. But the same themes keep popping up. Jesus existed. He was crucified by Pilate. He was followed by those who believed he was God because he rose back from the dead. And you could do whatever you needed to do to them. They were not going to bend their knee. And my question for you and I right now is, if you were there in the first or second century, and they had you 
basically pushed up against the wall, chained up and told, we're going to kill you if you continue to worship this Jesus, what would you need to continue on in your faith? I'll tell you what I would have needed. I would have needed to have either seen Jesus myself or know somebody who did or know somebody or seen somebody who saw Jesus back from the dead and then gave their life for it. That's what it would take for me as a first or second century follower of Jesus to go, okay, I know that I can trust this. I know that I can give my life because they gave their life because he gave his life and yet he rose back from the dead. That's what it would take for me. And I think that's what it took for these people. And they had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to see the risen Savior, to talk to someone who was there, to see someone give their life because they were so sure that Jesus was back from the dead. So what do I hope you're seeing today? Our eighth piece of the chair. I hope you're seeing that historical writings outside of the Bible are powerful evidence that Jesus died and rose again. That what you and I have in history to support what we've talked about today is so powerful. And this is so important because, again, we've all had the professor or the teacher who walked in the room and said, why would you take Jesus seriously? And here is the answer. You ready? Because history takes Jesus seriously. We have this incredible support of our faith. We have this incredible support of the writings of Scripture. Because even history acknowledges that Jesus lived, that he was worshipped by his followers, that he died, and that many believed he rose again to the point that they would give their life. Now, why does that matter for you and me today? Because just below the surface in many of our lives is some serious depression or maybe high-functioning depression or anxiety or anger or sadness. And Jesus alone is the pathway back toward healing. Counseling is powerful and important. I, I've done it. I encourage others to do it. I've told our whole staff, do it. We need it after the 20 months we've all lived through. We need it. But at the end of the day, the, the greatest anchor you and I have toward joy, peace, and healing is a risen Savior. And many of us here in the room would look around and say, you know, it's just not like it was supposed to be. Life was supposed to be different than this. This isn't the plan. This wasn't what I hoped for. And my prayer for you in this series is that you're seeing that maybe some of that dissatisfaction is because we just aren't home with the Lord yet. But that day is coming, everybody. And that's why this series matters. That's why the evidence is so important. You know, when I was in the hospital for 63 days, though they took incredible care of me, I actually had an appointment with one of my doctors this past week that helped save my life, and I thanked him again for all that he did. But one of the things I thanked him for was the friendship. I just said, man, you would come in, we'd talk about how bad the Jets are, um, you, you'd come in with a joke of the day, we'd laugh together, and I, just, I, I thanked him for just simply the friendship of a person in the room with me during that time when no one could come see me. And so they took great care of me. The, the food there was, was pretty good, man. There's, there's, you know, there's going to be a day where I, I go out to the store and I come home with a dozen roses and I, I dress up real nice and I look at Kelly and say, where do you want to eat, Stony Brook or St. Charles? You know, like, like it's pretty good food. I, you know, nothing will sweep her off her feet like that. And as good as, as everyone was to me there and as good as all of you were to me and, and reaching out, caring for my family, driving around the hospital, coming to my home on Christmas Eve and, and praying for me and worshiping God together at the end of services, coming together and praying for me, like as good as all that was, my whole time there, what did I want? I just wanted to go home. I was, I was grateful for so much. I had come back from the dead basically and, and God had done so much and I had received such love and care. 
but I just wanted to be home. There was still dissatisfaction in me because I wasn't where I belonged. And that is true of you and I to a degree here. Now, Jesus is a satisfier. He does give joy and peace. He does put lives back together. He does bring healing. But as long as we're here and now, we're going to be in anticipation of what's to come. And that's why this series matters so much. That's why a risen Savior matters so much for you and me today. Because there is homecoming. There is joy and peace. There will be a day our beautiful Savior will look us in the eyes and wipe away every tear. There's a day coming when all of the wrongs will be undone and made right. And I look forward to that day. And we think about what the followers of Jesus went through. And maybe we ask ourselves questions like, Lord, why am I going through what I'm going through? And we think back to the first century. God, why did these people get crucified? Why were they burned alive? Why were they eaten by dogs? You know, I don't have all the answers for that, but I do have one answer for that. And I think about the fact that I can stand here tonight, 2,000 years later, and tell you that we could take Jesus seriously because his followers took him that seriously. We can have faith that our Savior is risen because look at what the followers of Jesus and the eyewitnesses were willing to endure saying that Jesus was alive. And I don't know the exact purpose for some of what we've all walked through, but looking back to a time when there was purpose for what they walked through makes me know there's a purpose for what we're walking through right now. And so tonight I pray there's something in you that is looking ahead and there's something in you saying, okay, Jesus is the pathway to healing. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much that you are alive, that we can celebrate together what you've done for us. Thank you that in a world of high-functioning depression, in a world of anxiety and brokenness and sadness and anger, God, in a world of dissatisfaction because this is not how it's supposed to be, that, God, we can look ahead and we can look with hope and we can here and now ask for some of heaven to come down and we can know eventually all of heaven will come down, Lord. Thank you for that. Jesus, draw us close to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, would you bring to him maybe some of the dissatisfaction and say, Lord, thank you that there's a day coming when I will be with you in your arms, Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to look to him tonight as your savior, would you pray with me now? You could just say something like this. Jesus, thank you for leaving so much evidence. Thank you for all that you've done to show me you can be trusted. Thank you for your forgiveness, your love, your mercy and your grace. Show me how real you are and what it is to follow you. Amen. Next week, you're gonna hear some powerful stories of God putting lives back together. And so I encourage you to come. I've been aiming at your head a lot in this series and aiming at your heart a bit. Next week's largely aimed at your heart. And so come ready to really see what God can do in a broken situation. Let's stand together.